This is another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Good afternoon, Austin. Thank you so much for tuning in to Co-op Radio. This is a wonderful summer day here in Austin, Texas. It's hot and it is sunny. So thank you so much for being uh, with us, whether you're driving around or uh, 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 huddled up in your home with a uh, nice glass of iced tea or some lovely Malvasia or some white wines. This is the show where we talk about wine in the wine industry and we've got a great Great show for you today. Henry Croson is relatively new to the Texas wine scene. He's a winemaker. He's got a tasting room in his winery out in uh, in Fredericksburg, and we're going to talk all about uh, every aspect of what he is doing. He's uh, pushing the bar. He's doing some very interesting things with no uh, with natural yeast, with no sulfur. So it's going to be a great show f- uh, for you today. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with Henry Croson. All right, Henry Croson, welcome to another Bottle Down and welcome to Co-op Radio. Yeah, Mark, thanks for having me, man. It's great to have you here and it's great to, to spend this whole hour to talk about what you're doing out in Johnson City. And uh, I misspoke there, not Fredericksburg, but Johnson City. It's its own little nook of, of wineries that are coming up, right? Yeah, man. I, I think uh, Johnson City could be Sonoma to Fredericksburg's Napa, or at least that's the hope. We'll yeah, see. Yeah, there you go. So um, you're relatively new. You're op- only open for three months now? Yeah, yeah. Right, right between two and a half to three months, brand new. But you're not new to the Texas industry. So let's let's talk about, uh, so of course, your, your winery is Croson, uh, and, and folks who are uh, listening in and following along, you can find more information at croissantwines.com. Um, what made you want to do this crazy thing and make wine in Texas? <laughs> Man, I, I had a really great date once. I took, uh, <laughs> took my college girlfriend. It was our freshman year. We were at Texas A&M, and uh, we cruised out to the Texas wine country, visited a, visited a winery, had this transcendent experience, and I got the bug. Every single time I came out to the hill country after that, I just made a point to taste more wines and experience more things that was going on in Texas. Um, and it kind of grew from there. Yeah, take, take us back. I mean, when you were starting, so now you're obviously a winemaker. When you were in college, what, what kind of attracted you? What, what was it? Was it the complexity? Was it something that was totally different? Was it just that, you know, uh, it was, uh, got you in good graces with your, your girlfriend? Man, <laughs> it, was, it was just so stinking delicious at the time. I was, uh, I was studying recreation park and tourism sciences, which is not a particularly lucrative degree. Right. But I was managing a restaurant at the time, and I was thinking, you know, I can kind of parlay this degree and my restaurant management experience into something, uh, oh, in restaurants or resorts, something cool like that. Yeah. Um, but again, I kept being drawn back to the wine thing. And I was like, you know, what if, what if that could be it? What if you could start off doing some wine, winery management stuff, tasting room management stuff? 
um, and kind of crack into the industry in that fashion. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big piece to the wine industry. It's like, of course you have to make great wine, but you also have to uh, convey the beauty of the wines that you make and uh, captivate a, a, an audience and a consumer base, right? Absolutely, man. There's, there's no point in doing the beautiful things that you're doing if you can't talk about it right. and if you can't share it and that's that's huge well i'm looking forward to talking uh, over this uh, this hour here on another bottle down um if you're just tuning in we're talking with henry croson and he is uh the winemaker owner the janitor as well of yeah man of clean, the, clean the bathrooms <laughs> take the trash out it's a little bit of everything right so um so you know you fell in love with wine in, in college at texas a&m was there an agricultural piece there as well you know not it, not, not one one bit, man. I mowed lawns. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> so then where, when, what was the defining moment where you thought, okay, let's work in wine. Let's do this. Man, the defining moment, it, it definitely plays very heavily into my experiences at William Chris Vineyards. Yeah. Uh, the, the little date I went on with uh, my girlfriend in college, who is now my wife, by the way, she, she hates it when I just refer to her as my college girlfriend, <laughs> but she's my wife now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we did this beautiful tasting at William Chris and that's where I, you know, I, you know, I caught that bug and you yeah. taste these wines and there was, there was something going on there. There was, there was soulfulness, yeah. uh, something that William Chris still has. They're, they're changing the game for sure. And, uh, you know, I applied for a position in their office, uh, to be their assistant wine club manager. Again, I had restaurant management background, so it worked right. out really nicely. Um, but doing that first wine tasting and really getting to see what they were doing. And this was, this was in 2010. Uh, they'd been open, I think about six months, maybe eight months. Yeah. Uh, so really new on the scene. And it was again, truly, truly incredible. And I'm again, being drawn to that and wanting to be a part of it, applying for that position, getting that job, uh, working on the sales side, working with, uh, the wine club and getting to talk with a lot of people who have who are equally interested in wine. That's the cool thing about a wine club. You always have something in common with everyone who's in the club. Right, you know, you're right. all drinking wine. Uh, so getting to talk with those people and kind of continuing to grow that love. Yeah, and and I've seen since, you know, 2010, I've seen an interest in Texas wine across the the greater consumer base in in, in Austin and, and beyond in Texas keep on growing. Do you see that as well? I mean, there's just so much interest in Texas wine now. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, fortunately, that's the, that is industry growth, very much so. Yeah. Uh, we're doing things that are getting, that are really taking notice uh, nationally. People are starting to respect some of the wines that are being made, a lot of the different styles. You know, there was a, a little bit of lost identity, I think, uh, kind of at the, the beginnings of the Texas wine industry. A lot of, lot of trying to emulate other regions. And nowadays, it's like we're trying to focus and become what we can be. Yeah. You know, maybe the thing that we can really be known for is Muved or Tanat or Dry Rosé. You know, every year, Croson, uh, we participate in a, an, a, an annual festival, the Texas Wine Revolution, which showcases 100% Texas Rosé wines. Uh, and I think Texas really can become famous for a style. And Rosé could be that thing. You know, right now, Napa Valley is known for their Chardonnay and their Cabernet. Uh, Willamette Valley, you got beautiful Pinot Noirs. Um, Germany's dry Riesling. They, they, there's a association with regions and their particular wine styles. And I think Texas can have that one day. And I think that's something that we're coming to find. So but, trying, to, trying to grow these different wine styles and uh, get known for something which is being recognized nationally. But do you, so I, I might, um, 
you know, I might push back a little bit and ask you if that's a good thing. So a lot of people are talking now, and I hear this, that, you know, the fact that Napa Valley is so known for Cabernet Sauvignon, it, it, it has really driven up the prices. And now all that's grown there is Cabernet Sauvignon. They're ripping out old Zinfandel. And so now it's almost funneling it into a monoculture. Uh, I don't see that happening with Texas, but I, I, I just, God, I, I just certainly, I certainly hope not, but you're right. Yeah, you run that risk. And uh, one thing I've noticed with, even with that Texas wine revolution, the first one was uh, three years ago. And uh, man, there were a lot of really, really different wines and some of them weren't that good. And then you had some that were really beautiful. This past year, I think the wines were a touch more similar than they'd been in years past, but they were all good. Yeah. So yeah, it's a little give and take. There's less variability, but... um, you know, definitely the quality can potentially increase. Yeah. Um, Well, I always say when, you know, when I uh, arrived in Texas and started tasting the wines, uh, this was 2009, uh, a a large percentage of the wines that I tasted were almost flawed or, you know, not very good. And Uh, what a a bummer of a tasting experience that is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you're tasting through a whole bunch of wines and nothing calls to you um, and and you think that actually something's actually maybe micro biologically wrong with the wine, right. which we're going to talk a lot about this hour. For, for sure, for sure. We <laughs> not, need not, to. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and, but now, over the past, over those nine years, uh, the, the growth and the amount of amazing wines being produced in Texas is really off the charts. And it's one of the things that I really try and feature on this show because uh, there's so many producers doing great things and the industry is such in a forward growth that I'd like to be the, uh, the, the spokesperson for that. So, you know, it's great to have you on. Now, fast forward into what you are, the, the overall philosophy, and then we'll dig into the various aspects. But, you know, what is it that, that Croson is, you know, what do you want to be known for? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> so I guess we can take some time with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, about five years ago, uh, I drank a wine. It was made by a fellow named Tony Katuri. Tony's a winemaker in Sonoma, and Tony is a space cadet, right? He, <laughs> he makes super interesting wines using no intervention whatsoever. The no intervention in the cellar. As a winemaker, you have all these beautiful tools, things that can you, you can use to make wine consistent from year to year or to potentially correct flaws should flaws arise. Uh, things that you can do to adjust wine. Tony doesn't do any of that. He says, this is what this wine is. And uh, I drank one of his wines about five years ago and it blew my hair back, man. I've been chasing those flavors ever since. Thought it was so stinking beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, uh, and we're going to pin that, all those intervention pieces uh, and talk about that in a little bit more depth. But what, you know, can you uh, identify what that was that blew your hair back? I mean, I, I think that... Um, that so many people struggle when they, they're a wine lover, they're listening out there, uh, they have a hard time kind of defining these what the experience is of wine. Uh, can you uh, narrow it down a little bit? Yeah, man, it's, 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 it definitely goes beyond just the bottle, right? right? Yeah. It's, it's who you're with, it's the circumstances surrounding that. Uh, you know, I know I drank that bottle of wine uh, with Bill and Chris at, at William Chris Vineyard. So, you know, right. so Bill would be the William component. Right. Chris would be the Chris component. And uh, Bill has a long history and a great relationship with Tony. So he had access to all these really cool Katuri wines. And it was with them. And they were kind of talking about what Tony did. And I found it so appealing. Yeah. Uh, it excited me, right? It, it, it got my juices flowing. And I was just like, man, what if, 
what if we could do something like this? You know, and I, I know that like there are so many incredible things. Yeast, yeast is such a beautiful tool. And I'm sure you want to talk about that in a second, right. but it can control your fermentation. And you add yeast, you inoculate a wine with this various yeast strain and uh, it can take over a fermentation, make it healthy, make it consistent. Whereas if you don't add yeast, you run the risk of various uh, off yeasts and bad bacteria getting into that juice and getting to work before the good yeast takes over and produces right, those right. beautiful aromas and those beautiful flavors. So it's incredibly risky. Uh, you got to you got to put your money where your mouth is, quite frankly, uh, which Tony's been doing for a long time. And, again, and that's another component that I respect, uh, being willing to take risks just because you might make something that's so interesting. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, the risks are I don't know how, you know, how, how you do it, because uh, my stint in winemaking, if you know, I worried so much about things going going wrong and uh, and wild flavors taking off. But, you know, this is what you're talking about is almost a, a you know, we can we can uh, create the analysis to life like whether you know you are preferring something consistent and stable versus something wild and you know and that's that's how I see the flavors too that sometimes you know when you talk about adding a yeast strain that you know is going to produce certain flavors and then natural yeasts the, the yeast that are just in the in the uh, ambient you know air of the winery might produce might produce some wild stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You gotta, you know, you gotta marry the the artistry side with the business side, right? Uh, if I do have one of those bad bacterias get into my wine, man, I gotta compromise, and I'm probably going to correct it. And I'll acknowledge that. I think transparency is even bigger than than trying not trying to make wine with as little intervention as possible or no intervention. Uh, being aware of that compromise, you release a bad wine that really stinks. Uh, a couple of things that I'll do. My largest lot this past year was only four barrels. Wow. So let's say something bad happened. That's four barrels that, you know, I, I just ran that risk and I lost, right? But I have other barrels that work out. Whereas, you know, if I'm a larger winery and I've got 68 barrels in one lot, you right. know, man, it better be good. I've got families to feed. There's, you know, that's when you add yeast and you add a little bit of sulfur to protect it from oxygen. You do all these really really important things and they are beneficial and they are good and they've proven the test of time. They've been around for a long time. Right. Um, so you add, you know, you do these things to make sure your wine tastes good. Cause again, it's a business, yeah. you know, right. you, like it, a lot of it is creating this beautiful environment, right? You know, I want to have this environment where I can let my, <clears throat> let my wine speak for itself and, and let it, let it have these ambient yeasts ferment it. You know, my hope is that this could support that concept of terroir, right? T-E-R-R-O-I-R, right. -R -R -R, this beautiful French word dealing with having a sense of place. You know, I, I asked a French girl one time, I was like, what, is, what does terroir mean to you? I really wanted to hear her accent, right? right, right. And she was like, she says, terroir is when a wine takes on the energy of a place. Yeah. And my hope is that by allowing my wines to ferment spontaneously, hopefully whatever yeast strain consumed the sugars in that grape juice came out of that vineyard from which the grapes came, uh, which to me supports that concept of terroir, which makes that wine an extension of the energy of that place, which really, really excites me. Yeah. You know, that being said, a wine would be like a child, right? I've got a 15-month-old, you know, I don't want to invade her life too terribly much. I want her to grow and to develop and, and be her own person. But if I see her walking toward the edge of a cliff, I'm going to fix it. Right. And there's good reason for that, right? That's my job. Uh, and I think a lot of that is the same with wine too. You know, if I get to the point where wine is going south, 
I might need to compromise, make a change, and then discuss that with my fans, with my guests at my tasting room and tell them why. Right. Yeah. I, I love that. And I love your analogy of, you know, taking, saving your daughter from falling off the cliff. You know, the French call, when the French make wine after fermentation, the French call the period after fermentation and before it's bottled, that time span is called élevé. Yeah, I love that. And, yeah. and, and élevé, for the, for the folks who, who don't uh, speak French out there, élevé is the same word that you use in raising a child. It's rearing a child. And so um, the, the idea that the French really nail it on many metaphorical fronts, you know. Oh, dude, they've, they've been doing it so well for such a long time, man. And they definitely, they secured the corner of the market on all these beautiful words. Right. And yeah, right. And yeah, I mean, you can't beat the language. But uh, that concept that they're going to they're gonna take the wine in the barrel, that they're not actually making it at that point. It's just they're allowing it to happen yeah and, yeah. and guiding it that yeah. was a oh man that was a, something really stressful for me this past year i uh i made a mouvet it was really really interesting uh really cool wine and i i made a conscious effort to go through and taste all of my wines in january so they would have finished fermentation um toward the beginning of october they were in barrel just hanging out doing their thing that that eleva period of their of their development right. and um I went and tasted my wines in January, and my Mouved was absolutely horrible. Oh, no. And I, I, was, I was just devastated. It was my first time to make Mouved under my own label. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wanted it to be beautiful because I do believe in Mouved as a grape for Texas. I think yeah. it's an incredible thing. Right. And uh, I was so bummed that my wine just tasted bad. And <laughs> fortunately, right after that, there was this conference. I went to the... Uh, uh, the Hill Country Wine Symposium, right. uh, which is put on every year by the Texas Hill Country Wineries Association. And I got to kind of talk with a lot of different winemakers. I was like, man, I made this wine. I'm not a particularly big fan of it. And they're like, oh, dude, you can do this. You can do that. And then you have this other side of the model. It's like, ah, you know, just wait and see. Yeah, right. And that's a hard thing to do. I was fully prepared to take some uh, some copper and do some copper trials. You add a little copper to a wine and you can correct some some flaws like H2S. Right. Uh, so, some, so H2S for, for listeners, it's the it's hydrogen sulfide. It's the stinky egg quality of of, of wine that you can get um, that, uh, you know, sometimes can blow off with oxygen. Yeah. Or sometimes you need co copper. For sure. For sure. So I was prepared to run those trials. And again, that goes back to that concept of compromise. I right. cannot release this bad wine because I use these wines to feed my family. Right. Um, so I was like, you know, maybe I need to go in and do some copper trials, see if we can fix this wine right now. And it took a lot on my end to step back for a second and just be like, you know, we can, we can see what this wine does. Let's allow it to allow it to develop in barrel. Uh, like you just said, a little bit of oxygen exposure. And plus Mouvet is a, a, a tricky, tricky little grape, man. It goes through a little roller coaster ride. And uh, what if it was just at the bottom of the roller coaster at the time? Yeah. And it was cranking its way up to the peak and it was about to, you know, smile at the sun and do all these really cool things. And I was just going to take that opportunity away from it, uh, which would have been painfully frustrating. Yeah. Uh, so fortunately, I did not run those copper trials. I allowed it to... You didn't even do the trials. You didn't, didn't even do the trial. Because that could like, have been somewhat, you know, non... You, you know, you're not committing to the whole barrel. You know, you're just doing a trial. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I, you know, I could have... 
could have done that. Maybe I should have. Uh, but then you learn and you could grow. have. Com- but then it could have compromised you. Then you could have said, "Well, this is better than this than the 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 non treated at the time," and you could have stripped it of all of its flavor. It, yeah, man. You know, and exactly. So what you start second guessing yeah. yourself. Well, I just let it ride, and I yeah. tasted that wine recently. And I am thrilled. So this I think is it's incredibly this cool. This is seven months after that, about and, and yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, it's grown and it's developed and it's got a it's got a story to tell. Yeah, which again I think is exciting. Um, yeah. Do you have an idea as to you know you've done a lot of experiments too, and we're going to talk about some more experiments that you've done uh, side by side with more of this natural winemaking. Um, you might not like that term, uh, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, some of these, you know, um, minimal intervention or natural winemaking, uh, techniques and, you know, what, what is it, you know, you've seen what wine does and the, ch- and the, um, the twists and the turns and the surprises that it gives. I mean, is there anything that, uh, that's, na- you know, natural about wine that, that does that? I mean, it, no other products that we consume does that beautiful thing. Yeah, that just kind of grows and develops on its own. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that term, natural wine, it's a cool thing. Uh, it is definitely a marketing term. Right. right. Uh, and, and in America, there's no true definition for what a natural wine is. Uh, natural wine producers have not gotten together and established and said, hey, if you make natural wine, you cannot inoculate. You cannot add sulfites. You cannot filter. If you use barrels, you can't use barrels that are brand new because that takes oak that's oak flavoring you know or take it even further you can't use air conditioning or you can't use stainless steel you know things that are widely accepted in the industry and beneficial you know a lot of people would look at me and say that i'm not a natural wine producer i don't use organic or biodynamic grapes Uh, my grapes are farmed conventionally they are machine harvested for the most part um I do absolutely use air conditioning because, you know, you walk outside right now, it's like 18,000 degrees. <laughs> so you got you to gotta adjust for that. Uh, wine will bake and just taste horrible. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, natural wine is a, oh, it's an area of contention in wine. I think more than anything, it, it boils down to just transparency. Yeah. You know, why do you choose you to do what you do? And again, like for me, not adding yeast, I think that that makes my wine potentially carry on the energy of a vineyard more so, hopefully because that yeast strain came out of that vineyard, which, by the way, I have no evidence to support. I have no idea what yeast fermented my wines. Um, but more than anything, it just excites me. You know, I'm making <laughs> wine that I think is very interesting and kind of, kind of risky, which, again, gets my gears flowing, and I'm just like, oh, man, we're going to do this. We're going to make it this way and see what happens. I'm comfortable running that risk gets me excited and makes something that's really interesting and has a story to tell. Right. Wow. Um, but yeah, natural wine I mean, as a whole, it's, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, I don't know, you know, you're an adrenaline junkie maybe, or also maybe a masochist and, and I, have, <laughs> I haven't really decided yet. And so we have to take a short break, but I want to, you know, in, in almost wrapping up this term natural wine, I, I think that we can, uh, say for listeners who want some sort of concrete, you know, something to grab onto. Natural wine um, really does have to do with no at no addition of you know yeast that come from a laboratory. So you're allowing the yeast, which you do, and then another massive thing is, uh, and maybe even more important, is that the wine does not have sulfur or sulfites 
as a stabilizing and an antimicrobial factor that is added into into the wine as a, as a stabilizing factor. And after the break, we are going to talk about. Can you wait? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sounds we, awesome. We need to <laughs> we need to hear some station announcements, and we'll be right back. If you're just tuning in, my name is Mark Rayshap. This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, and we're talking with Henry Croson from Croson Wines. Uh, check out the website is CrosonWines.com. We'll be right back. This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio. My name is Mark Rayshap, and we talk wine and the wine industry. We feature sommeliers and restaurateurs around Austin. We interview winemakers from all around the world, um, and uh, we particularly focus on the Texas wine industry. And today we're talking with Henry Croson, and uh, Henry has been making wine out in the Hill Country for a couple of years, and uh, he just recently opened up his winery um, and tasting room in Johnson City. And so it's a great, uh, great to have him on the show. Henry, you know, we, we talked about so much in the first 25 minutes of the show, and, uh, you know, I'd like to maybe take a step back and have you uh, delineate and, and explain your whole winemaking process, and maybe starting with the vineyards. Um, you know, you mentioned that the vineyards are not organic or biodynamic. Correct, uh, yeah. And that might not be possible, you know, um, and that's a whole other d- debate. <laughs> yeah, but, but, yeah. but, you know, where, what, um, lead us through your winemaking process. Yeah, so starting with the vineyard, I do try to uh, to pick a touch early, and a lot of that is I want to retain natural acidity yeah. as best as possible. Uh, you know, the Western world, Texas in particular, we're famous for wines with very poor acidity. Uh, we end up using a lot of tartaric acid in our cellars, which is a beautiful tool. Uh, it's extracted naturally from grape skins. And you can basically add tartaric acid to a wine. It'll acidify a wine. You know, conversely, you look at Europe and France in particular, a very common additive in France is beet sugar. So they have the exact opposite problem. They have problems with low sugar, which correlates directly with low alcohol. Uh, so they'll add beet sugar, whereas in the West, we add a lot of tartaric acid. And that's just how it, how it is. Yeah. Um, and, how, and how widespread is that? I mean, is, it's, it's... The last number I heard in France was that 40% of wineries add some form of beet sugar. And, and then here in Texas, what would you say about what percentage of wineries add tartaric acid to correct for acidity? You know, I, I can't speak intelligently to that. Um, I have added it to a lot of wines. I added it to my first rosé. Yeah. So my first rosé, the goal was to make wine in, um, in this fashion with no intervention. And I ran the numbers on the juice when the, when the rosé came in, and I was just defeated. The sugars were right where I wanted them. The acid was not appropriate, and this was going to be my very first wine ever, so it yeah. had to be good. Right. You know, I wanted to come storming out of the gates with something beautiful and interesting. Right. So I added tartaric acid to two barrels of rosé last year. Now, one... One thing that I've been kicking myself on for the past year is that I didn't do a trial. So I added tartaric acid to both barrels of wine, Mm -hmm. whereas in my mind, in retrospect, I should have added tartaric acid to one barrel and then let the other barrel ride and just see what could happen. Um, I'm not ashamed of that decision uh, because the wine was beautiful, it was interesting, and it sold out. So thank goodness. <laughs> but, uh, the, you know, I wish I'd have done that trial so I could be more well-informed, but tartaric acid use is, is wide in the, in the industry and it should be, right. you know, I think it does make better wine. 
So do you, after that first uh, time, after your first rosé, adding tartaric acid, have you, um, have you done it since? I have not added tartaric acid okay, since. Okay, right. I actually, <laughs> I'll be honest and say it, I made a conscious effort and didn't even check the acids this past year. Wow. Uh, so we, and I, I picked the acids, or I checked the acids in the vineyard. Okay. After picking, once I'd made the harvest decision and told the grower to go ahead and pick the fruit, that's when I chose not to add the, not to check the acids. Therefore, I would not feel inclined to add any acid. So I do try to pick based off of lower acidity, which also means that, or lower, higher acidity, lower pH, which correlates typically to lower sugar content. Uh, and again, yeast eats sugars in this grape juice, turns that sugar into alcohol. So right. that's the magical winemaking. <laughs> and I ended up with a lot of really low alcohols, which is kind of exciting. The, uh, the rosé you and I tasted earlier is 11.5% alcohol. Wow. Uh, the Malvasia, you and I, or Malvasia, rather, that you and I tasted earlier is 12.5%. The two Malbecs we tasted are 12% alcohol. So all pretty low alcohol. And that, those are harvest decisions. Kind of looking at it, making the decision to pick early based primarily off those acids. That way those nice, bright acids carry through with lower alcohol wines, which also appeals to me. Yeah. Uh, I like drinking wine with lower alcohol because I can enjoy more of it with my friends and family. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> so that's that's what happens in the vineyard. Try to pick a touch early. Uh, I don't add any sulfur at harvest. And that is, that's another um, common practice. And there's right. nothing wrong with that. There's uh, You can add various forms of sulfur that will kind of go ahead and start the process of killing off potential uh, microbes and bacterias that may be in that must, that grape juice. You can add the sulfur. It'll go ahead and kind of inhibit that from taking over. And then, boom, you're able to inoculate with your own yeast and right. allow that yeast to take over. And, um, and then those yeast almost are, you know, super, they're, they're, they're isolated for their power to, like, you know, be consistent and take over the fermentation, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, the yeast... I think it was 1857 when Louis Pasteur discovered the mechanism for fermentation. So after 1857, you have all these labs that start isolating various yeast strains that, that can function really well in a wine environment and can yeah. get the job done in a healthy way. You know, if you have a yeast strain that starts doing its job and then stops, you have a stuck fermentation. You've got a little bit of alcohol in your wine. You got a little bit of sugar left. And then boom, you have this environment where all these microbes and uh, bacteria and other yeast strains can get involved and start producing off flavors and off aromas in your wine. And that's a huge, huge fear. So these labs are isolating these yeast strains that have been proven time and time again to get the job done very, very well. Right. Um, and, and I should say that, you know, that it's almost a debate whether that's a not so natural way of doing things, because it's not like the yeast are genetically modified. They're actually isolated from somewhere naturally. Correct. And it's a then, naturally occurring and thing. And then yeah. they're propagated in a laboratory and then they're essentially like dried out or dehydrated and then you just rehydrate them. But you know, a lot of winemakers and, and I, I would love your impression on this is think that. Well, the yeast that are almost native in the vineyard and are occurring on the grape skins uh, are just kind of, they should naturally be there. And, and that is, you know, more true to that vineyard. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I believe. Yes. Yeah. And again, I, I have no evidence to support that the yeast that consumes the sugars in my grape juice came out of the vineyard from which those grapes came. But that's what I hope. And I think that that's happening. Uh, the Malbec that you and I tasted, yeah. it was 100% for sure 
fermenting when it came off the truck from Brownfield, Texas. So I, the, I unload these grapes. They had not received any sulfur additions at that point whatsoever. And I, it's, it's fermenting. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know what the truck was doing the day before. It could have been hauling potatoes across New Mexico. I don't know. But either way, that truck brought grapes to me, and those grapes were fermenting, which really got me excited. That had me almost convinced that whatever yeast was getting to work was meant to be there. But, but more, from more that so, vineyard. I mean, what, the more important thing to say is probably, you know, it was fermenting. Not only was it fermenting, but it was smelling good, right? Yeah, exactly, because, exactly. Because and that goes off, back to that analogy with my daughter, right? If I start smelling an off-fermentation, it might be time to compromise. And again, I haven't had to make that... Uh, Make that decision just yet. I haven't had to inoculate. You know, I have not. I have not had a stuck fermentation uh, in my vast experience with spontaneously fermented wines of two years. Yeah, right, I have right. not had a stuck <laughs> fermentation. Uh, you know, if I do end up having a stuck fermentation this year, I might look into inoculating. And sure. if I inoculate with what? Yeah. You know, you look at what wineries did. You know, hundreds of years ago, they might not have known that yeast was eating the sugars in the grape juice. But these wineries were kind of creating a mother, a yeast strain that they would carry down in their cellar, and they would use this same yeast strain every year at harvest. They weren't necessarily inoculating with a particular yeast strain. They were inoculating with something that was fermenting, um, which to me is a form of inoculation, and I don't think there's... There's anything wrong with that either. Again, I think what draws me to allowing the wines to ferment spontaneously is that maybe it carries an extension of that vineyard. Yeah. And yeah. I think that it, it produces something that is a touch interesting. You know, there are things in it that you can't pick up in other wines. And I love talking about that. The way we have our tastings designed in our tasting room. I've actually never done a tasting behind a bar at my tasting room. They're all seated with the bottles on the table. And, right. you know, I discuss wine with people for 45 minutes and about you know, about why I'm doing the things that I'm doing, choosing to do things the way I'm choosing to do them. Right. Um, going back again, starting with fermentation, you know, that's, that's the conception of a wine. That's when it, where it really gets going. Um, and that's super important. And I choose again, choose to allow the wines to just start going spontaneously because I do think that that's special and it produces aromas and flavors that you can't find in inoculated wines. That being said, evidence has shown that wines that have been inoculated with a specific yeast strain, they, that specific yeast strain is typically not what finishes the fermentation, or it certainly doesn't finish that fermentation alone. So even if you inoculate, there are other things getting into your wine and getting to work and yeah. pr- producing these alcohols and these esters and these aromas. Yeah. yeah, and that's the magic of wine is that you can never replicate the situation entirely it's chaos correct in, in yeah there, and you know? isn't that thrilling yeah right? absolutely so so let's so we've got grapes coming off of the vineyard they you, you're not putting salt you're not putting sulfites in them at that point you're not putting tartaric acid to correct for the acidity at that point they ferment how what what is your process then are you um, so I'll, you know fermentation, you got to make sure it's still rocking and rolling. So you'll use a hydrometer and measure for degrees bricks, yeah, uh, basically sugar sure content. Going, and yeah. Exactly. Make sure it's continuing its job. Um, most of my wines finished fermentation from about a week to less than a week. After that, if it's a, if it's a rosé or a white wine, I would make sure it gets into barrel pretty quickly. Uh, it's already been pressed at that point, and it typically ferments in a, a tank, a flex tank is what I used this past year. Um, move that wine into barrel and then allow it to age 
allow it to do its thing. There, there's activity still taking place inside of a wine, continuing to produce aromas and produce flavors and, and round out potential harshness and astringency in a wine. That's something oxygen can really contribute. You right. add a little bit of oxygen to a wine. It's amazing how it can really round out flavors yeah. with red wines at the end of fermentation. That's when I'll press, press the juice off the skins, negotiate that juice into barrel and let it sit for that eleva uh, <laughs> stage of its development. Yeah, wow. And and you see, and you you almost see that 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 stuff is happening in the barrel. Does it finally calm down? Um, you know, the the French used to say that um, you know in the winter time when the cellars would get really cold, the uh, the wines would almost stop their microbial activity. And, oh yeah, yeah. And then thusly, champagne eventually becomes right. born, right? And, and then they would, uh, and then they would, you know, in the spring when it was warming up, that you know the barrels would kind of pop their uh, their tops, and, and and the winemakers would say, you know, the wine's alive. You know, it comes alive in the spring. Yeah. Um, so this this will really get into some nerdy stuff. I'm a huge fan of a fellow named Clark Smith. So Clark Smith wrote this book, Postmodern Winemaking, yeah. and he focused an entire chapter of this book onto what he calls integrated Britannomyces management. So Britannomyces, it's a yeast strain. It can get into your wine, make a wine smell like old books or barnyard. Just it, It's off aromas. Right. If you ever want to know what Brett really smells like, just drink an old bottle of Burgundy and you'll really get a full understanding of it, in my opinion. Or or a lot of breweries are now using it intentionally. And, yeah, you know. man. There's a, there's Brett junkies out there that can right. isolate, that, that can identify various strains of Brett, which to me is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but Clark speaks about how with Brett, it's most likely going to get in there. Um, it has shown, even if you use a little bit of sulfites, there's going to be some cultures of Brett. It won't culture as much, but it will be there. So the best thing you can do is almost create an environment where it can grow. Mm. Uh, Clark actually encourages keeping your cellar at above 60 degrees for that very reason. Keep it a touch warmer. Uh, he talks about high pH winemaking. A lot of winemaking you work with lower pH. If you have lower pH and a, a little bit of good SO2, you have a stable environment where things right. really, really have a hard time growing or can't grow. Uh, you know, you keep it a touch warmer, have a little bit elevated pH, which is a little lower acidity. Uh, that's when things can really take off. And that's quite frankly, something I do strive for. If something's going to happen in my wines, I want it to happen when it's in barrel. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, you can listen to it. Uh, uh, one of my dear friends, Tim Drake, uh, he used to be the winemaker at Flat Creek. He does a lot of consulting now. A uh, great buddy of mine, he will stick his ear up to the to the bunghole of a barrel and listen in, and you can hear malolactic fermentation taking place. Yeah. And it was so cool to me when he showed me that, and I found that so appealing. It is alive. There are yeah. things taking place inside that barrel. You create this environment where these things are allowed to take place. You have... Um, Oh, things competing in your wine. You know, Brett is there and it's competing with all these microbes and, uh, you know, things will win and things will lose and you create these aromas and these flavors. You know, if you have a wine that's existing in a sterile environment, you might not have that competition, right. which right. later on in that wine's life makes it more susceptible to damage. So let's say your wine is sterile throughout its entire existence, low pH, you've kept it at a proper level of sulfites. Um, right, like classically clean winemaking. Yeah, exactly. Classically clean winemaking. And then it comes time to bottle and you move your wine into your bottling tank. Well, man, what if there's Brett in there? 
And then boom, it's for the first time in its life, it's in a warmer environment, potentially. It's in a situation where it can really take off. Uh, so Clark speaks about creating kind of a, a wasteland, a desert for microbes in your wine. And you do that by allowing things to get to work. Well, well that's, it's uh, to carry on the children metaphor. I mean, you, yeah. know, you want your kid to be sick when they're young, right? Absolutely, and, and, yeah. And so they build up their, their, their immune systems and uh, then they have, uh, then they're healthy in their, in their older life. So, that, I mean, that's the way to think about that, right? For sure, for sure. And, and Clark will, and me for sure, but Clark as well, be the first person to admit that we don't really know anything. The tonnage of what I don't know about wine would crush this building, and that is a fact. Uh, so I, I'm right now we're making wine based off of best guess. Yeah. Now, and you don't have any desire to almost swab the winery and find out what's happening there, or I mean, th is there a desire to kind of find out what's going on in that chaotic environment, or you feel like you can never grasp it? You know, I think I think in the future I'd really really like to. Uh, the past year, actually, um, I worked full time at a whiskey distillery. So my winemaking took um, took a back seat. I was really making wine on the side, and it's only within the past two months that I uh, that I left my full time job and started doing wine full time. Wow! And once you really, once I'm really kind of getting into my own, as far as handling my own schedule, when to do tastings, when to work in the cellar, and then create a create an avenue where I can start doing some real research. Yeah. Yes, I would like to kind of understand to a greater extent exactly what's happening in my wines. And going back to those trials at a, at a very small scale, I have started doing that. So my first rosé, which I added acid to, right. um, I, it came time to bottle. At this point, the wine has gone through its Elevá period. It has existed in barrel. Uh, the competition of microbes in that barrel has occurred. Uh, I've created this wasteland. The wine is stable. It's ready for packaging. But I'd never made a wine before without the use of sulfites, without adding a little bit of SO2, which I know has shown to be beneficial. Right. You know, it can kill off a little bit of harmful organisms potentially, and it makes it will bind with oxygen and kind of help protect wine from oxygen damage, from oxidation. You know, my biggest fear at the time was releasing my first wine, popping open a bottle after four months and it tasting like vinegar. Right. I was scared to death. And again, I knew that a little bit of sulfur might be able to counteract that. So right at packaging my first rosé, I ran a trial. I bottled one case of wine without sulfites. And then I bottled the rest of the lot, which ended up being 47 cases of wine bottled with the addition of sulfites right at bottling. So I knew that that wine would be bottle stable. Um, and once a month for a year, the next 12 months, I tasted those two wines side by side. Sulfite-free 2016 rosé adjacent to 2016 rosé with sulfites. And every single time I did this side-by-side -side tasting, I preferred the wine that did not have sulfites. Wow. And it was delicious. It was not vinegar. It was, uh, it was interesting. It had a store to dealt, and it was done in the way that I dreamed of doing. You know, going back to that bottle from Katuri, I didn't want to make a wine that had anything in it. I love the concept of, let's say I did an ingredients list on the back label of my wines. The ingredients would be grapes, right. which yeah. again, I think is so fun. I'd love to talk about that in yeah. tastings. Uh, you know, there's no point in doing the cool things we're doing unless we can talk about it. Yeah. So I wanted to make wine without sulfites, but also didn't want to just do it to do it. I'm incredibly joyful that I did that trial. Uh, since that 2016 rosé, I have not added sulfites to any of my wines and they are rocking and rolling. They're really, really beautiful and interesting. I don't think that they 
they have lost a step as far as shelf life. You know, that's one big fear. I've had people ask me, um, how long will your wine last in my cellar knowing that it doesn't have any sulfide right, additions? Right, so that's what people say. You, you know, you can't cellar or age or leave open on the counter wines without sulfites because it doesn't have that barrier. But you exactly, find, but yeah. But you find wrong. You find that that's not true. Well, so thus far with the wines that I've made, yes, I feel very confident that my wines can age and age beautifully. Um, the, the 2016 Malbec that we tasted, uh, I've left a bottle open on my counter before for three days and I tasted it after three days and it was interesting. It was different, right? but it had not turned South. It had not turned into something that was undrinkable. Right. It was still worthwhile. And that's, that's something that's huge. I want to make wine that's worth your time, right? Something that you can share with somebody, have a beautiful experience, you know, whether or not you're on a date with your girlfriend or you're with your your teammates at work, you're sharing something special, right? Um, and I think making something that's worth your time is what appeals to me. And thus far, the wines that I've made have held up that, that length of time. Yeah. They've been able to stand up to a little bit of oxidation. Yeah. And, and the, the more I'm doing, you know, this whole wine thing and, and learning every day, uh, the more I am interested in these flavors that you can't get in, in any other bottle. And, and that, that's what really is intriguing me. Uh, Henry Croson, we need to take um, another break here. Uh, if you're just tuning in, thank you for listening uh, to Co-op Radio. This is radio for people and not for profit. My name is Mark Rayshap, and this is Another Bottle Down, where we talk about wine and the wine industry. Today, the whole hour is with Henry Croson from Croson Wines. Uh, you can check out more information on his winery and the tasting room and all of the wines that he makes at croasonwines.com. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. We are back. Thank you so much on, uh, for tuning in on this on this warm Austin, Texas day. Um, we're about to get into harvest. Uh, we're hearing, we're getting reports that we're about three weeks away. Yeah, in, yeah. Uh, just just got a text message from one of my growers. We we need to get our party pants on. Get ready. Uh, my 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 business partner uh, in the wine in the wine deal uh, is my dad. Yeah. So growing up, I always wanted to work with my dad. He's my hero. Uh, he and my big brother were the best men in my wedding. So we're, we're really close. And uh, I, when it came time to start making wine, you know, this past year I was working at a whiskey distillery and I was going to be making wine kind of on the side for the most part alone. I was like, man, who do I want to work with? Who's got a, who's got a killer work ethic that I enjoy <laughs> being around? And man, it was always going to be my dad. Uh, and he and I have been, I talked to him on the phone every day and I'm like, he says, you know, Henry, when do we need to start making, making some wine? I'm like, man, I don't know. Uh, but I'm excited that, you know, right now we're, we're getting a little bit closer, getting some numbers from our growers. Uh, and, and my dad and I will be able to start heading up to West Texas to look at the vineyards and make harvest decisions and hopefully make the right harvest decisions uh, so that we can continue to make wine the way we've been making it with nice natural acidity, spontaneously fermented uh, with those no sulfite additions and, uh, and no filtration. Yeah. You know, that's another aspect of that natural wine thing. And I, and I did fortunately do another trial on filtration with that 2016 rosé. Um, on a small scale, I filtered a handful of bottles of the wine. I knew I didn't want to filter. I felt like I had heard that unfiltered wine could potentially be better. Um, but I also didn't want to just do something to be doing it. Right. So that's when I made the decision to run a trial, filtered a little bit of wine, tasted the filtered wine adjacent to the unfiltered expression of that wine. And the unfiltered wine was 
just absolutely astounding. It was better. Can can yeah? Can you define how it was better? Because this topic for folks listening out there, whether to filter or not, is very hotly debated. Some scientists say, well, the flavor molecules are too small; they'll go through the filter. The people who don't like filtering say that um, you know it strips the wine of flavor. So, did you just notice when you said that the non-filtered wine was better? define that was it just more vibrant more flavor or what was it it had a depth of character uh there was something something round something it had a greater story to tell you know and i i i drink a whole lot of filtered wines i don't think there's anything wrong with filtration but at its very core you know it's like it's like pushing a wine through a densely packed coffee filter you can look at the filter and see that it's you know red or, or pink or whatever the case may be and that is obviously something that came out of the wine Right. Uh, so yeah. it does something to the wine. I don't necessarily believe that it horribly affects a wine, but it definitely disrupts it in some fashion. Uh, it could potentially be a positive thing, uh, depending on your style of winemaking. If you filter a wine that has a touch of residual sugar, let's say you sterile filter it, you're going to get this nice fattiness from that residual sugar without the risk of that wine re-fermenting in bottle, right, uh, right. which is a very beneficial tool. Well, that's my, my biggest fear making wine the way I make wine is that someone's going to leave my tasting room in Jostin City uh, and drive down the highway and talk to 18 other tasting rooms and be like, man, the cat in Johnson City says you shouldn't filter or add sulfites. I'm like, whoa, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm just choosing not to do that um, based off my almost selfishly because that's what I want to do. Right. Uh, yeah. It appeals to me. And I did think that the unfiltered wine tasted better. Yeah. And again, that can vary from wine to wine. With that 2016 rosé, which is the only wine I've done a trial on with filtration, the unfiltered expression was a better wine. Yeah, yeah. Would you do a wine with sweetness without filtering? <laughs> it would have to be fortified. It would right? have to be fortified. I'd right. have to add some brandy to that wine and kill off anything that could potentially be alive yeah. yeah yeah okay let's run through some of the wines we've got about um nine minutes left in the show so yeah yeah uh this has just flown by if you're just tuning in we're talking with henry croson croson his uh tasting room and winery uh are in johnson city out in the hill country are, are the tasting room and the winery in the same place or right now i still pay to use other people's winery okay. facilities okay right. so i do have the chance to make my own wine but uh, getting started, I was not in a position to build my own winery. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, that's actually phase two, and we're working on that right now. We got, we got permission from the city of Johnson City to build our winery immediately adjacent to the awesome. tasting room. Great. Uh, and I think that we, we could have that up and running in the next couple of months. So we'll do barrel storage there. If not fermentation for this harvest, we will be... Right. rocking and rolling with our own winery on site. Awesome. Definitely thrills me for sure. So in the tasting room, you know, you sit down and, and you have an extended conversation about the wine. So so run us through. We've talked a, quite a bit about the rosé. 2016 was the first one, right? 2016 rosé was the first one and she is gone. Right, right. now, right now we were pouring our 2017 rosé. Right. Uh, it's 100% Merlot. Uh, I have an incredible love for this wine. It, uh, it represents a 22-hour day for my business partner and I. <laughs> uh, Dad and I were in the vineyard at, I guess, 7 a.m. that day, uh, or right before the sun came up at least, uh, with five of our new teammates. And we started picking some grapes. Uh, we took those grapes to the winery at around 2 o'clock, started processing the, processing the wine. Right. Um, we ended up going to bed at about four in the morning. Oh man, that was a twenty-two hour day at least. 
in, in all due or in all honesty, at least that last hour probably involved us having a nice scotch right. when we got home to kind of celebrate our victory. But we did end up making a really beautiful wine that day. It was made made in the way that I always dreamed, and it, it is tasting like I always hoped. Something that's interesting, something that I find appealing. Um, it fermented spontaneously. It received no acidification, although it has this nice, bright, natural acidity. Uh, it barrel-aged, yeah. which I do think is important. It adds a little bit of oxygen to the wine. Makes that wine, I guess you could describe it as more of a winter rosé. It makes it a little bigger, a little more yeah. contemplative, something you can pair with a meal and sit and talk about for hours. You know, yeah. uh, you can definitely function as a nice little porch pounder rosé. You can sure. sit outside and chug a lug. But well, I think well, it is, definitely shines best when when paired and when you're with good buddies, right? Well, and it also, you know, if uh, this is kind of a good, good, good hint for folks, um, if you chill it down really far, then it might do better uh, outside. It might be, you know, a little bit more kind of that summer pounder, exactly. But, yeah. But 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 really good rosé should come up a little bit in temperature. Then if you you know in the evening when the sun goes down, you can bring it inside and allow that rosé to warm up, and you'll get more texture and more complexity to it. Absolutely. Right? You find that? Yeah. Yeah, you know, colder things, quite frankly, are just harder to smell. Yeah. So you allow it to warm up, and you can pick up on these really interesting aromatics and these interesting flavors. Uh, and that, you know, in a single glass of wine, there's over 900 different aromatic compounds, over 900 different things that you could possibly smell or taste, depending on the environment in which you're tasting, the room you're sitting in, the temperature of that room, the temperature of that wine, what you ate for lunch. All these things influence what you're experiencing in that bottle, which is so cool. It kind of you know, you take home several bottles of one wine, you can drink these bottles in different scenarios right, yeah. and really pick up on lots of cool different flavors, some things that are really appealing. And, and you know, leaving them overnight to, to have oxygen and, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that uh, I always say for folks, you know, open two bottles at the same time and then uh, compare them and then as well leave them to the next day, uh, you know, and so you can see the changes. Okay, but we, we've got to move to the whites. So what whites are you doing? Oh, so this past Sunday, we released our Malvasia Bianca. Awesome. Uh, really, really cool little white grape. It's, I believe it's originally from France. It's finding its home on the islands of Madeira. It's one of the, one of the grapes that's used primarily to produce Madeira-baked, fortified dessert wine. Right. A really, really interesting style of wine that I, that I cherish. Yeah. And that was the dream for this Malvasia, was to make dessert wine <laughs> and harvest was here. The wine was fermenting and I really started looking into some of the prices of brandy that were available. And I decided that we were not going to make dessert <laughs> wine fortified with very, very expensive brandy. So we decided to kind of turn that program into a still dry wine Malvasia. And I am so joyful that I did. We just established our own little program. Right. Um, you know, it was, Dessert wine, I think, is something that we will do in the future, but we are always going to retain having a nice dry Malvasia just because it is so beautiful and so interesting. Right. And our fans are are being being excited by it, which, again, good, that's all it's about. Right. Is if you can make something that you can sit and enjoy with a bunch of people, that's that's the dream. So the Malvasia, it has, you know, nice aromatics, nice these floral aromatics. And, and again, for you, very important that the, that it's fresh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it's new, so I'm still getting to know her. So that's that's the wine that I'm really drinking a lot more right now yeah. uh, to kind of fully understand the flavors, tasting it after it's been open a few days. Um, I got an email last night from a dear friend of mine in the industry who said, hey, I just had your Malvasia. Do you still have some bottles left? 
And I was like, absolutely we do. And that was such a validating feeling. Yeah. Uh, knowing that people are kind of, if it is different than most Malvasia, it went through malolactic fermentation. So it has that creaminess. Right. Uh, it was barrel aged. It is unfiltered. It is very, very different, but it is appealing still. It's different and exciting. Well, let's move to, to the red. So currently on release, you have uh, the Malbec, right? And the yeah. two versions of Malbec. That's right. So yeah. 2016, we got some Malbec from Lost Draw Vineyards. I think Lost Draw is one of the premier vineyard operations in Texas. Yeah. Uh, so we get this Malbec. That's the wine that was fermenting when it came off the truck. Uh, it was made in that, that fashion that I love. It fermented spontaneously. No sulfites, no acids. Uh, but what I did do, I aged half of it in oak which is the most common way to age wine. And the other half I aged in a con concrete barrel. Yeah. Uh, allowed the wines to age separately, bottled them after about oh, nine months of aging. And uh, man, those and, wines couldn't be more different. Right. They're so interesting. Yeah, so describe, and, and you also get a lot of feedback from people who have been visiting the tasting room. What do people say and what, do you, what are yeah, your impressions? You know, the, it's, it seems like the concrete has these beautiful, nice aromatics, and then the oak has this flavor profile that you strive for. One thing I've noticed is that it's almost 50-50 and almost gender-specific. Ladies typically prefer the oaked wine, and gentlemen typically prefer the concrete wine, huh. uh, which is the same way in my family. My wife doesn't even drink the concrete, but she loves the oak, and I think that, that is so cool. Uh, I did trials. I, I blended the wines to varying degrees. A little bit of oaked wine blended with a little bit of concrete wine, trying to make this perfect Malbec. But none of those blends that I did were nearly as appealing as the differences between the two. Yeah. Which again, I, I find that so interesting and exciting. Just It's worthwhile. Right. And you can sit in this tasting room and talk about these two wines for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Absolutely. Uh, just dissecting the differences and really and getting down to it. That's the advantage of being an artisan producer in a small winery where you can you can really have that impact. Well, wh where where are we going? What's what's uh, what's on store for this year? What are you really excited about? Oh man, we uh, we're going to work with some Italian varieties this year. A little bit of Sangiovese and Montepulciano. I'm right. incredibly incredibly excited about. Um, we we will always make Tanat and Mouved and Roussan and Malvasia. Uh, and for sure, a bunch of rosé, just because rosé is delicious. <laughs> but uh, I'm excited about working with some Italian varieties and, and seeing how they do and how they end up tasting uh, right. through this particular winemaking style. Well, Sangiovese and Montepulciano might be perfect for your program because they tend to have a little bit more natural acidity, right? Absolutely, yeah. 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 Well, Henry Croson, this has been a pleasure. Our hour has come and gone really quickly. Um, good luck with this year's harvest and good luck with the tasting room. Man, I uh, really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Let's stay in touch and, um, and, and the best of luck uh, during this harvest. And hope, hopefully all of your fermentations are perfect, wild, and interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. We'll and healthy. <laughs> yep, and healthy. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Mark Rayshop. This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. Stay tuned for the People's Republic of Austin with Brian. We'll see you next week, folks.